Lebanese are suffering. Uh, Beirut is Beirut needs help, and uh, the Lebanese desperately need money. So throughout this episode, there will be links in the details box. You can just access them, click, and choose your NGO. Choose the Lebanese Red Cross if you wish. Send money. If you can, send money. And um, I don't know what else to say. The images are horrifying. Um, that level of explosion in, uh, in one of the most congested parts of the city, tearing the city apart, um, it's just shocking. There's no, there's no word to describe the, uh, the intensity of what is being viewed across the world. And uh, I just I can't imagine the pain right now in Beirut. So if you can, please help send money. And again, just click on the details box and you'll be directed that way. And now to the topic we agreed to earlier, an issue that is uh, part of modern Lebanese history and Lebanese politics, a verdict of judgment on Friday with Olga Kavrin, the head of outreach and legacy, the special tribunal for Lebanon. Olga, given the circumstances, given the insanity, um, it means a lot that you're willing to speak to me. I hesitated actually, which is why I reached out. I was concerned that maybe this was just the wrong time, but you're very generous, you're very kind, and I think this will serve as a very symbolic moment just given the background, how painful things are at the moment in Beirut. And uh, the images are horrifying. I, I literally was just still, I was still watching it right before I, I called you. And I'm, I'm a bit shaken, to be honest. Even though I'm not in Beirut right now, and I think every moment I'm not in Beirut, my heart and mind is focused on Beirut. And when these things happen, that's all I think about. Uh, this sounds cliche. I apologize. Are, are you okay? I mean, I, I don't know where you are in Lebanon. I assume you're in Beirut, but are you, I, again, I apologize for this rather silly question, but I hope, I hope you're okay. And are, are you okay? Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm happy to actually be talking to you. I was looking forward to this conversation because I very much enjoy um, your podcast. Um, yes, I am okay. And, uh, and we live far enough from from the blast or Montevete, mm. but the whole building shook. Yeah. Right? So the whole building yeah. shook. But I need to give you some context because I think it'll 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 give you um, a better idea of, of what's happening um, here. So in the lead up to the judgment, we've set up a number of webinars as we do. I mean, our job is to brief people on what's going on at the STL. So I, I just will say I've been invited to at least I think three of them. So I, I should note Excellent. that I get I get your name all the time. <laughs> if you attend any of them you'll hear the you know the same the same story because it's yeah. <laughs> um, but so one of these was scheduled for this evening at six PM mm. with the lawyers from the Tripoli Bar Association. Yes. And we were all meeting up on Zoom, as you do these days, and, and um, to discuss, you know, the, the, my job, of course, is to explain 
how we got to the point that we got to in terms of the work of the STL and then, you know, just to answer people's questions. So we start, and, and my good friend and colleague, um, whom at some stage you will see in either one of these webinars or in some other um, situation, uh, Reina, was moderating or was meant to moderate the webinar. And she lives in Jaitewe, in Ashrafi. Yes. In a tall building yes. right above the port. So um, at one point, she is... In the webinar, I mean, we're, we're just getting started, right? We're not even started. We're waiting for people to kind of join. We're just giving everybody a few minutes. The batonier yeah. had already yeah. joined. The interpreters were, you know, ready and, and, and people were uh, still joining the, the zoo. And at one point, she jumps out of her seat because obviously, you know, we see her as I see you now, right? She jumps out of her chair and, and, and she looks very uh, worried, but you couldn't hear anything. And so she comes back and she says, there seems to be shooting outside. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I know where she is. She's on the 11th floor. It's on a hill. So it's way above like any street level. Yeah. Right? Um, and and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what she's talking about, what kind of shooting is going on, what's going on, right? And she sits back down. She seems to be calm for a couple of minutes, but you could see that she's looking over the computer and at you know, out her window, because I know the layout of her house is such that she's sitting at her dining room table with her, you know, facing the window and with her back to her door to the entrance to the apartment. And at one point, she jumps up again and she says, I'm sorry, there's something going on. I have to leave. So she signs off. And at this point, I'm completely freaked out because this is not something she would do under any normal circumstance. Yeah. And... 30 seconds later, or maybe a minute later, our whole building shakes, right? So I guess it's how long it took the blast to get to us, yeah. because we're actually over the hill. Right. We're over the hill from the, we don't even see the port. We didn't even see the plume, but we felt the, the, the shake, right? And so, and that at, that at which point, I also said, I'm sorry, but there may be another explosion. I don't know what's going on. I need to find out primarily what's going on with her. So I signed off as well. And I'm thinking everybody else has. And, and, and my husband runs in and he says, what What do we do? And I mean, he, because he, he was really freaked out. Yeah. And so anyways, we signed off. The, the, the point is um, what she did is she ran out the door she ran out of her apartment into the hallway, and at that moment, the door fell on top of her, right? If she had stayed where she was sitting 30 seconds earlier, she would be either dead or, or completely, like, injured by glass, by flying debris, but because her apartment is completely destroyed. And she was sitting in that spot. I have a photograph that she sent me of the spot in which she... Literally seconds before that. I mean, she was so quick so, to make that that crucial decision. She got up and moved yes, right, right, yeah, within seconds. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, and and it's literally. I don't think she would be. She either wouldn't be alive, or she'd be severely injured if uh, if she had stayed sitting in that spot, you know, doing this webinar. And so, uh, twenty minutes later. 
I realized that um, the people in the Tripoli Bar Association was still there. So then we went back to the webinar and uh, we lost the interpreters at this point because they had all lost internet and one of the interpreters in fact had damage in her house luckily not nobody was hurt as i understand but they had damage in their house as as, as this was all happening yeah. and uh, and i went back and, and another uh friend and associate uh, helped with communication because my arabic is pretty rudimentary and so uh we did this webinar and we would you know it was. I it felt a little bit surreal. I was obviously happy to do it because people were very interested and they had many questions and many of them participated and, and all of this. But it just felt really surreal because I, you know this is going on and at the same time I have like a billion messages coming through on WhatsApp from yeah. everybody I know around the planet. <laughs> you know, seeing what's going on and he's asking, "What well, you know? Are you okay? Is everything fine?" So it was a very surreal experience. I mean, I'll tell you from my side, just my own sort of limited interaction with you before recording, I was surprised as well when you said you were in a webinar. And I, I was like, this is, I mean, this is real dedication to the webinar. I really, I mean, I was, I was a bit impressed. And I think uh, these are symbolic moments that they matter. I mean, I know it's, these things have been said in different contexts, but uh, I think I think we're so familiar at this point to the abnormal that it's never, it isn't that big of a decision really at this point. You just, you go back to the webinar and you see that it serves a purpose and you know that these explosions are not, are not unique. I think that's, that's a real tragedy for modern Lebanon. And before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge that also it's extremely symbolic that a massive explosion in downtown Beirut 15 years ago, 15 and a half years ago, is really what brought this story that we're going to explore to fruition, you know, 15 and a half years later, moments mm -hmm. ago, two, three hours ago, a huge explosion of severe magnitude that shakes Beirut to its core. So this is, I think, um, it's a very sad, symbolic uh, familiarity, I think. And uh, we'll get into this terrain. And you know what? The moment is rather somber, and I know that there's a lot of, um, I mean, the pain can be felt, I think, anywhere if you have family or friends. So I kind of, uh, I felt it here. I'm, a, I'm in New York. I've been in New York since January, but that's all I've been sort of consumed with. So um, I want to start maybe, uh, if you don't mind, let's go back in time a bit and then kind of bring it to the current situation. And uh, I'll try to avoid the current <laughs> fiasco as much as I can. Try to focus more on really what's uh, what the tribunal is doing and, and where we're heading on Friday. Let's go back in time though. Um, I want your input here and I really want to gauge your mind. I'm, I'm curious from your own sort of your own personal experience, your own professional experience. Uh, do you think this tribunal met the aspirations of the average Lebanese that was hoping for some accountability 15 and a half years ago, and some perhaps, perhaps, form of justice that's too often robbed in the Lebanese context? And do you think it eventually served its purpose, meaning that Friday is the proper culmination of all that was talked about 15 and a half years ago, 
all that happened in the last 15 years. Do you see this as the appropriate conclusion? Or from your side, and I really want to explore this topic with you as much as you'd like, whether or not there are severe hurdles, obstacles, and perhaps issues that were beyond the tribunal's control per se, where it seems to be more of a footnote rather than a huge moment of celebration. And I'm saying this carefully because I know that I don't, I don't want to cross any lines. I don't want to sort of point fingers necessarily. I just want your own sort of, your own immediate feelings to where we are now in Lebanon 15 and a half years later and on Friday when the verdict will be issued. So just, just your own sort of personal take on the, on the wider story of the tribunal. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, it can only be, in the, if we're discussing that, it can only really be my, my uh, personal take, right? It's not an yeah. official position of the tribunal, and that needs to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, just by way of background, because I think it bears upon this question, I come from the former Yugoslavia, right? So I see myself as, as and I worked for the Yugoslav tribunal for nearly 14 years, yes. which is relevant in as much as I see myself as, on the one hand, a staff member or, quote-unquote, official of the tribunal as we're meant to be, right? But on the other hand, a client. Because I come from a country that benefited from the inter- an international judicial intervention mm-hmm. in the form of the ICTY in the in, in, in former Yugoslavia, right? Yes. So I draw on a lot of analogies between the two for many reasons. There are many similarities between the two countries. Mm. There are many similarities in the history. There are many similarities in the culture, particularly in the culture, huh. right? Because our moms are the same. Our grandmas <laughs> are the same. I, I mean, I've lived here now for 10 years, and... I'm telling you, a Lebanese mom and a mom from the Balkans, same it's mom. the same thing. The good and the bad, right? It's the same mom. You know, I'm just going to interject so, one thing, just one yeah. thing. And this is a, a bit silly, but I think it's appropriate. I've My travels to the Balkans, former Yugoslavia countries, whenever I hear that zdravo, I kind of like, I <laughs> feels like, oh, <laughs> I know this, I know what that is, Kifa. Or, uh, no, sorry, it's hello, hello, hello. Yeah, and then when I hear kakosi, I'm like, oh, God, what do they know about me? What did they find out? So I, I, it's almost like I know what's at stake. Yeah, and I agree with you. There is that. There is a familiar, there is many links. I guess they're also historic, but also sort of cultural links as well. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, many, many, many links, clearly. There are vast differences, and especially when we talk about now going back to the issue of international criminal justice, the tribunals are, of course, very different, established for different reasons in the aftermath of different kinds of events and all of that. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I think it's still a relevant analogy, if you will, is because the ICTY has achieved a number of things in terms of its main mandate. Mm. You know, that you could look at the statistics and you say, okay, 90 people have been convicted for various serious crimes and, and so on and so forth. But it has also achieved a number of things which I think will be measured for the next day, de- you know, for several decades. Yes. Because it's yes. not at all immediately 
obvious as to what these institutions, you know, there, there's great expectations, which is really understandable, from particularly from victims. There are huge expectations of these institutions. These institutions can never meet those expectations. That's a fact. They will never be able to meet the expectations of the victims, right? Because there are so many and they're so different. They will also be pretty um, incapable of meeting the expectations of most of society because they're always given, because these expectations are always so much bigger than what an institution of that nature can achieve. Mm -hmm. And why? Because what we're dealing with Right? We're dealing with extremely traumatic events, regardless of whether they're mass atrocity or terrorist attacks, as in the case of ESTM. We're dealing with deeply traumatic events, which were deemed to be a threat to international peace and security, not just a local event, but something that is much bigger than that. Right? Yes. And they're always... Um, they have a huge impact on society. So the entire society has expectations from these institutions, right? And they, these expectations, connect, for that reason, these expectations can really never be met. But uh, as to whether, so the, the short answer to your question as to whether uh, the STL will be able to satisfy those in Lebanon who who want certain things, it's an impossible question to answer right now for the simple reason that there's so many different people and they want so many different things from this institution. Some expect it to do something that it was never established to do, which is deal with groups or states, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because it's an institution of individual criminal responsibility, same as every other international court. Which is very, with the exception of the International Court of Justice that deals with states only, right? right. So right. there already is, is something that people very often fail to 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 understand that it's it's individual criminal responsibility sort that we're talking. About. So right. you know, the judgment on Friday, I have no idea what the outcome of it is. However, I do know that it will not be issued against any entity. It will be issued, you know, to four individuals, whether they're right. guilty or not right. guilty, that remains to be seen. But it will not be issued against an entity as such, because that is not the jurisdiction of the institution. So that's just one of the, the issues. You another know, question, which mm, yeah, no, 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 please, please, go ahead, please, go ahead. So another question that always comes up is, you know, there is uh, why these particular attacks. You know, why? There will be so many different attacks and so forth. And I don't have an answer as to why these particular attacks, because this is something that would have to be answered by those who requested the institution and then those who put it in place. Right? When Once us who work within the SDL, we work within the mandate mm. and are not in a position to, to question as to why the mandate is such. Um, such as it is. So there are better placed people to, to, to answer that question. But um, my question to, to in response to that, because we believe it or not, we got the same exact question when the ICTY was established back in 93, mm-hmm. right? Why 
we have an ICTY for crimes committed in the former Yugoslavia when all these people in Vietnam, in Cambodia, and I don't know where, got away with everything. And my question, to, my response to that was always, why not? Why do you think that somebody who is, I mean, again, with the former Yugoslavia, with the ICTY, my question to everybody was always, is there a single person that was ever convicted by the ICTY who you would argue is an innocent man? That's actually, that, 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 that's a fair point, actually. Very, that's actually a fair assessment on, on really the benefits of doing it, even if other countries did not explore that, or, or even, even if it wasn't taken upon sort of a tribunal and, and going to The Hague. That's a very fair point. But that's actually a nice way to kind of take it to other terrain, which is, and I fully agree with, I mean, I'm in no position to disagree, to be honest, and what, and what you've just said. And um, I guess I'm going to ask it in a very amateur way. And I apologize if, if any of these questions appear naive, but I've, I've been watching the tribunal for, 15, for 13 years, since 2007 primarily, where it kind of sort of became a, a matter of fact. Since the assassination of Hariri, it sort of, it was, I guess, the expectations were there, but it's really the last 13 years that I've kind of really taken sort of note and personally felt extremely disappointed, which is why I kind of started it that way, because I want to understand why I may be, and I'm just an individual, why I felt disappointed. I'm going to take it maybe a step back. My understanding of at least the expectations, even if they're not necessarily the STL's jurisdiction, was that investigating that assassination in 2005 was meant to, and you correct me if I'm wrong, was meant to put pressure on individuals committing similar crimes. And that's really the basis for approaching terrorism as a sort of, as an issue at hand, that, that, that the SDL is really investigating a terrorist incident, and therefore the onus is on terrorists, and I'm going to use this word loosely here, uh, that, that political assassinations, if they're to be curtailed, the SDL will help in, in, that, in that path. I might, might have this wrong. But then, shortly thereafter, assassinations became a routine part of modern Lebanese history. And it's important also to note that they predate Hariri. So it's not like Hariri is the first or the last, but the SDL begins after his assassination. And there are 11 in total including Hariri's assassination, culminating in my father's in late 2013, which is why as somebody, and again, this is my own immediate experience, I'm not trying to speak on behalf of necessarily proponents or antagonists, just my own experience, feels like Friday will have absolutely no impact on my emotional well-being. Now, I say this again, as somebody who appreciates this sort of, form of clarity in a sense, which is that you're absolutely right. This is not meant to tackle a group's politics. It's not meant to put a state, not, not meant to put states and hold them to account. And I'm glad you said that. And that may be one of the biggest benefits of this, of Friday, which is that these are four individuals being treated as individuals and they're pulled out of the Lebanese sort of quagmire, that this is not going to be a Lebanese sectarian sort of uh, blow up. This is now four individuals treated as such in the Hague, and that's that, which is a healthy perspective. And I, I share that sort of sentiment. But that said, um, I, I don't think it really did much to heal the wounds 
of at least this form of assassination or terrorism. If anything, um, I see it as a double-edged sword that uh, the assassinations persisted. And even those sort of questioning the, let's say, questioning the antagonists or the critics of the STL were left with very little to use. And that, okay, international justice is great, but, I mean, it's not really delivering what it set out. And I, I want you to correct me in everything if I said everything wrong. I really want to hear it from your side. Because I feel a bit privileged, in a sense, to ask you these things directly. And so, any, I mean, if you can put what I said in perspective, maybe, and, and I would appreciate any sort of clarification on why it doesn't feel like that kind of joy that I remember, and these are my own memories, of sort of Bosnians with the ICTY, Croats, to maybe a lesser degree, Serbs as well, or for that matter, seeing these very, 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 very important gestures, meaning that people were taken to The Hague in the ICTY case. There are individuals who paid the ultimate price by suicide or by sort of natural causes, but it doesn't matter that they actually, they were there, they weren't at home. And that doesn't seem to be part of the story, at least in the Lebanese context. And we can go into that as much as you'd like. But I'm, I've, I've rambled on too long. If you can put that in perspective, maybe from your own eyes, and see if I've there's sort so of... Many, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there's, there, there's so many elements to that, that, again, I don't want to be simplistic and say that what I'm going to say is going to answer all these questions. But here's something to ponder and to you know, consider, right? So ICTY established in May 93, right? Mm -hmm. Genocide in Srebrenica, July 95. Right. The ethnic cleansing of Kosovo, 90. 1999. Yes. Right? Yeah. The, the one analysis I have ever heard of a possibility where the ICTY may have played a deterrent, but nobody will ever know for sure, it's just a, a guess, mm -hmm. is Macedonia. Because just as the Macedonian conflict was really kicking off mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in mid 2001, Milosevic got arrested, the former president. Yes, sure. right. And got delivered to the head. And according to some analysts and some people who were on the ground and, you know, close to the whole situation, allegedly this kind of stopped the, the whole thing in Macedonia from getting much worse. Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. This institution has teeth, right? Right. Because right. if he ended up in the hay, then we can all end up in the hay. And in fact, some of them did. But the point is that according to that analysis, which again, as I said, it's impossible to determine whether it's true or not, mm -hmm. that made the single solitary example of some kind of a deterrent. That's that's removing the the element of them. Actually, there are people that did end up at the Hague. That that aside, meaning no, that is, I mean, yeah, during right, right. this whole time, yeah, we've exactly. got trials. Right? We have yes. trials going on, we have people being convicted, we right. have people being arrested, we have even people surrendering, we yes. even have people you know, yes. uh, admitting guilt. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the war still went on. It was simple existence or even functioning of the tribunal for years did not seem to be a direct deterrent. Mm. People would argue mm -hmm. that the fact that the International Criminal Court 
was established and opened its doors in 2002 didn't seem to be serving as a deterrent. I mean, look at Syria. Right. So, you know, what I would say to that is, is I'm not sure that an institution like that can immediately serve as a deterrent. Mm. Especially not before you realize what actually might come out of it. Now, we don't know the outcome of the judgment. That's true. But we do know that that there will be great detail in what the judges write. Because all international courts issue extremely long judgments, like really long judgments. Judgment. We're talking about minimum of hundreds, and, and, and there are you know, judgments that go into the thousands of pages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they analyze all the evidence that's presented, all the witness statements, all the witness testimony, all the examination and cross-examination, everything that happened in these courtrooms over years, and it's always years, gets examined and looked at and written down and explained. And this is something that in, it will never have happened in Lebanon to that extent. That I'm certain of, because right. I, have, I have some knowledge and understanding of how the system here works, or any national system. It's not like the Lebanese system is so unique. In national systems, you don't have uh, necessarily uh, such lengthy, detailed decisions on these kinds of uh, cases, because these inter- tribunals would not be set up if these cases could be handled by national authorities. And I'm talking about the vast majority of the cases um, that are dealt with by international tribunals. So there will be things which will never have been done before, but it really remains to be seen what effect uh, or how that will be perceived, how that will be interpreted, what will be done with that information, right? There's a couple of other examples that I want to give, and, and, and forgive me for giving you all these examples from the ICTY, but... No, actually, I, I'm, I'm glad you do. No, no, on the contrary. It actually, because I, I appreciate that comparison, really, and I and I know that you you have your own sort of personal experience with it. So, no, no, I, I actually appreciate that, uh, that angle. It gives a lot of, you know, there's a lot of questions that people still have which we cannot answer from the position of the STL precisely because we don't have a judgment as yet. Mm. So Mm. I find that it always helps to kind of uh, draw some of these these, uh, analogies because there's some similarities. So I'll give you um, an interesting one as well for uh, for the IC, in the ICTY. So the Srebrenica genocide happened in 95, right? In 2005, so 10 years on, the and several trials in which people had already been convicted of the, their participation in the genocide. Mm. So these had already been completed. Milosevic is sitting in the Hague on trial. Right. right? Yeah. Towards yeah. the end of the presentation of the prosecution case, the prosecution obtains a video. It's a, I think. If I forget, it's maybe a seven or eight minute video in which we see a group of young men who are tied up and they are taunted by a group of Serb officers, army officers or uh, paramilitary. And they're basically, you know, taunted and taken on a truck and then off a truck and into the woods and off camera, they're killed. You don't see the killing you understand from the shots that they have just been executed. That video 
which the judges never accepted into evidence for a technical reason because it was brought into court at a late date and they didn't find that the the prosecution had the justification to to, do it such a late stage. But long story short, that video would never have been included in the material that's looked at to determine Milosevic's guilt or innocence had he lived to see the conviction. Right. But it resulted in about three months of literally, I, I can only describe it as convulsions in Serbian society about the genocide. It almost seemed as now, like because of this video, that there was this like huge burst of like discussion, you know, needing to deal with this, you know, issue, which I found absolutely fascinating at the time, and I still do, and would like to actually see a sociologist do a study on, you know, from a from a scientific point of view, because it's not as if this this video did not provide any new information. Mm. Mm. It wasn't particularly gruesome in the terms of like it's shocking, you know, it's not like some ISIS video might be or something like this. It was, you know, there were many more shocking things that would have, that had come out that had come out at that point um, in the ICTY trials. So to this day, it is unclear to me why that was such a huge deal why this particular video touched on earth. And that's why I keep saying, you can't really know all of the possible effects of a process such as this. You cannot foresee them. Mm, mm. You cannot control them, right? And then I'll add to that one more uh, um, interesting thing that I did. There was a legacy conference on the ICTY that was held in Sarajevo, I think it was 2017. 16, 16, 17 maybe, and uh, a historian from the Netherlands who was part of a panel on uh, the historical legacy of the ICT. Hmm. And he explained very eloquently, and it's very interesting actually to, to, to hear him talk about that, he explained how historians have a very different view of all of these things. So whereas judges have to look at all the evidence that's presented in court with and, and judge it, is this proven beyond a reasonable doubt? It's a huge, uh, um, it's a very high threshold, to, as it, well it should be, because it has to do with you know, determining the conviction, uh, the innocence or guilt of an individual. So for judges, every single, uh, all the evidence has to convince them beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody is guilty. Otherwise, they have to. For a historian, that's not the case. <laughs> right. They can look at this evidence with a very different lens. And they do look at it with a very different lens because they don't have the beyond the reasonable doubt right. uh, threshold, right? Yeah. They can weave a story. Another thing that they don't have as a limitation is that they can look at facts which have nothing to do with the, the person in court, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The court can only look at that which has a bearing on the guilt or innocence of the individual. What that means in, in, in war situations is that you might have a whole massacre going on against a group that happens to be associated with the perpetrator, right? Yes. But that whole massacre will not yes. be part of the evidence in that particular case unless it can somehow contribute to the determination of the perpetrator's guilt or innocence. And 
because uh, there is a there is a, uh, in um, in law something called two quoque defense, which means you did it also, is not permitted. So you cannot defend yourself, even in a war situation, you cannot defend yourself by saying, hey, they attacked us, so we attacked them back. Right. If you committed a crime, you committed a crime. There is no evil, there is no, you cannot bring that up. But a historian will certainly look at everything that was happening sure. in and sure. around the particular place, in and around the particular event, right. with a very different set of... Uh, um, I mean, with their own professional integrity, but one that that doesn't fit the same pattern, the, the parameters, if you know what I mean. And that also maybe adds to the the, fa the simple fact that any tribunal will have to have sort of a duration to cover. It can't sort of go back to stories that happened in the 1980s or the 1950s, that it has to start and end somewhere. And I, I appreciate that the special tribunal doesn't cover all assassinations after Hadidis, so I know that as well. But I, but I, I want to explore one thing which you, which you touched on. I think this is an opinion shared among, and you're right to point out the difference between historians or, let's say, uh, journalists, and that for that matter, sort of legal authorities, judges, etc. But it is, I think, a point worth mentioning. The signs of maybe uh, kicking the can down the road, sort of a weight a bit, slowing things down, potential obstacles, those were there at the beginning. So, And I want to explore this just a bit. It seemed like there were initial months of sort of vig rigorous investigation, and this is going back years ago, to the days of Detlev Melis, so this is some time ago. Um, but then sort of you see that kind of, he shares his opinions through various media outlets, and there's a slowing down. And to a certain degree, almost like a pause in the whole proceeding with, uh, with Bremerts. And I, I want to sort of compare that kind of hesitation, or at least perceived hesitation, and that things kind of get watered down over time. And with Belmare, it sort of it changes. Maybe the expectations are changing. Comparing that to ICTY, is it fair to say that... and I'm saying this sort of in a, in a broader context, that the geopolitics of the Dayton Accords, the sort of EU sort of gift package, if you will, sort of this incentive, let's say, for countries to surrender certain individuals, or for that, for that matter, for certain countries to, let's say, prosper over time, that they see the tribunal as part of a bigger story, and they're eager to maybe help as opposed to the Lebanese context, which, in my mind, it seems like absolutely no incentive. And that may, may include the bodies that are there to sort of help deliver justice. These are offhanded quotes. I mean, I know they're sourced sort of left and right here and there, so I'm not going to say it's direct attribution, but those sort of informal ideas where Kofi Annan is saying we don't want another hotspot, that happens to be the Lebanese story, the tribunal, and sort of Hezbollah, and in particular Syria, and that. They don't want another hotspot. Is that the fate of Lebanon, and that we have an STL, we have a special tribunal, that is, in a way, become a part of Lebanon's story, that it's tied into geopolitical issues that are beyond, beyond let's say, the UN's concerns, and beyond maybe uh, Lebanon, in that 
This is as much as we can hope for given all the obstacles. And I'm keeping this particularly vague because I, I, I appreciate the comparison to ex Yugoslavia. And I think that it seems from my side that regional politics, geopolitics were instrumental in making sure genocides did not happen later. In the, in the 2000s and 2010s, you don't really have that sort of repeated violence in former Yugoslavia. And you're right, uh, Macedonia was spared that sort of civil war-like situation. And you don't hear about it anymore, and that's maybe a, a step in the right direction. That these are not flashpoints. Um, and Lebanon, I mean, 15 years later, violence remains the norm, and, and assassinations sort of continued up until 2013, and it's a part of life. It's not like there's any, um, there's no guarantee that, you know, we've moved past that. Well, quite the contrary. So d do regional and geopolitics, at the end of the day, dictate in a sense, the, the robustness, the, the, maybe the persistence of bringing justice? Or is that too romantic? Is that sort of too naive on my part to suggest that? And as somebody who's sort of seen both sides, I'm curious what, what your perspective is. Well, look, when it comes to the ICTY, first of all, we have to differentiate two things, right? We've got to differentiate politics, which happen outside of these institutions. Of course, yeah. And that which happens inside of these institutions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which has nothing to do with poverty. Mm. So we have to differentiate that because all too often, these institutions get mixed up in people's ideas, you know, political ideas. And I understand why, because, I mean, they are established by political bodies, mm. right? They're established by the UN Security Council or they're established by the UN Security Council in agreement with the state, such as the Clinton, such as was the case with Lebanon and with Sierra Leone, for example, and so on. Or they're established by the European Union as the right. more recent uh, right. Kosovo, right? Or they're established by the African Union in combination with somebody else. So they mm -hmm. are established by political entities. But mm -hmm. then again, every law and every democracy is passed by the parliament. And, and the parliament is school, they're a bunch of politicians, right? This is what they do. Yeah. And so, we need to differentiate between, so you've got an institution, it's established, it's given a mandate. We can debate, like, in you know, the, 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 this tribunal was established to deal with cases, with uh, incidents that happened between October 2004 and December 2005. Right. And thereafter, openly, with the agreement of Lebanon and the UN and the Security Council, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that... that Basically, that means that so far, at least, I haven't heard of such an event. And so, therefore, yeah. we're between 1 October 2004 and 12 December 2005. The ICTY was established, its jurisdiction was from 1 January to 1991 onwards, right? right. The Rwanda Tribunal was the 1st of January to the 31st of December 94. So, there, there's different time frames, right. and these are surely political decisions made at a particular point in time by a particular, by a particular entity. So just right? for reference, it's Marwan Ahmedi's attempted assassination until Gibran Twaini's assassination, and the attempted assassinations yes. in between, and the successful ones as well. So it's that kind of window yes. 
uh, yeah, it's 14 right. or 15 attacks altogether. Something right, like from Meisha Dia as that, well, and and uh, sort of uh, Elias yeah, Mon. Yeah. Right. Time frame, mm -hmm. yeah. but so far, also we have the obviously the Hariri assassination is the the one to which all of these would need to be connected. Right, right. And so far, the judges, I mean, the pretrial judge has determined that Hamede, Awi, and Tumur. Uh, assassinations and attempted assassinations are the ones that fall under the jurisdiction as it's defined in the statute right. so far. Yes. That's what's, uh, so, but um, what I'm saying, so we have to be very careful in differentiating between decisions that lead to the creation of these institutions and then their functioning in the same way that when a law gets passed, it may have been based on a political decision. For example, death penalty. It's a yeah. very political issue of any country, right? So some countries choose to vote on a law that abolishes the death penalty, others don't. But it's very much a political debate within any country. Mm. So any law that gets passed on, on you know, criminal jurisdiction. But the point is, once that law is passed, what differentiates a proper functioning democracy from something else is whether that, that law is equally applied to all citizens, right? Right. So it's the law is a political decision. The application of the law cannot be. Otherwise, we're not talking about a functional democracy. In the same way, the tribunals may be created due to various political decisions, but their cases must not have any political influence, right? Which is why you have these transparent proceedings. Mm. This is what it is. It's absolutely requirement that the proceedings be transparent and that the judgments be transparent and written and so forth so that people can look for themselves as to what evidence was brought and what the judges um, decided. So this is something that's very important in terms of, uh, uh, however, there's a big handicap for all international courts and tribunals. They don't have their own enforcement mechanisms. Right. There is no, like, so at the international level, you have the judiciary, right? If, you, if we look at a political system and we say we have something that we refer to as the trias politica, right? You've got the executive, you've got the legislative, you've got the judiciary, right? In, in, in countries. Mm -hmm. At the international level, you only have the judiciary. There is no executive, there is no legislature. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Which yeah. is why yeah. these courts take on many functions that otherwise would be done by ministries. And one of these functions is enforcement. So, but is that, yes, yeah. But, it's, but if we can go with that particular point, does that sort of, is that the bigger story behind the slowing down of the STL, especially under Bremerts? And I mean, I know that this is maybe pre, it's before maybe. I, I'm assuming you were not part of that sort of moment, and at least the Lebanese context. So, I mean, this is really just from your own side and your own sort of your own lens. Is that because the STL d did not see the Lebanese state eager to implement its own laws at home? Or is it more to do with the politics happening out away from the STL, that there is a sort of deliberate, this is maybe too toxic, it may cause other problems that maybe most member states are not interested in handling. Because I'm curious about that sort of initial push and then that sort of odd slowing down that all of us sort of witnessed in Beirut 
many people spoke of and many people sort of analyzed without maybe uh, getting to the bottom of it. But I'm, I'm curious from your end, is that, is that a relu- frustration with what you're describing, which is you need a state to implement and enforce, otherwise there isn't much to work with? Well, actually, well, first of all, just to clarify, so you, um, the, you're speaking about the UNIIIC, I presume, because that's what Bernard yeah. was the commission of. But I'm also wondering whether it has to do with perception, mm-hmm. or is it because there is when you speak about an investigation, and I absolutely cannot speak for the for the triple IC or for that matter for sure. the office of the prosecutor, because yeah. the investigation is something that I'm I wouldn't be privy to right. um, as somebody who works in the in the registry of the tribunal. That's another thing is these organizations are quite I mean as well they must be. Um, but just the, sort of like, but the foundations to the tribunal itself, sort of like the initial stages of what would become the tribunal, it seems like it, it didn't really start start on the right footing. And this is, again, from a naive perspective. Am I, am, am I right in saying I that? Wonder, yeah, please, please, go ahead. Hmm. I wonder whether it's a perception issue mm. or a reality issue, because mm. at the end of the day, so the tribunal itself opens, you know, starts on March 2009. Right. It was established in 2007, but then, you know, it was uh, by the time it actually started working, by the time everything was set up and put in place and everything else, it was one March 2009. Right. At which point the Triple IC ceased to exist, and Belmar, who was the last commissioner of the Triple IC, became the first prosecutor of the STL. The material collected was transferred to the thing that is uh, not often uh, understood, and this is, again, another similarity, um, there with the commission, and, and uh, because there are two completely different organizations, the STL's rules of procedure and evidence, that which guides the proceedings, was issued by the judges of the STL after the STL's establishment. Right, right. Yeah. So which was a similar situation to what happened in the ICTY, which was also pre- preceded by an investigative commission. The reason that's relevant is, again, for analogy, I do not know, I cannot speak on behalf of the Office of the Prosecutor or the Commission sure. for that matter, but I can tell sure. you that, for example, in the ICTY, when the Basuni Commission, as it was known, because it was led by Sharif Basuni, the late uh, Egyptian uh, professor and judge. You've dated us both just by saying that name. He took me back in time as well. So yeah, I realized gee, that's that's yeah. <laughs> you you took me yeah. back in time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the Basuti Commission preceded the the ICTY, but and the material from the commission was transferred to the office of the prosecutor, whereupon mm-hmm. the office of the prosecutor had to do its own investigation. Right? So it could use, of course, the material as a starting point, but it still had to conduct its own investigation in line with the rules of procedure and evidence of the ICTY. Right. Okay. So this is very important as well. So 1 March 2009 is what you want to look at as the starting point, which is not to say that what had been done before is, is not significant, not in any way. But I'm just saying that this is what we need to be looking at when we look at the trial, right? Right. And the and what right. the STL starts in one March. Uh, it starts in, um, in the, on the first of March, two thousand and nine. 
I don't know. I have read about suggestions of slowing down, but I'm really wondering whether that's a matter of perception for the simple fact that there wasn't as much information available publicly. Because investigations are notoriously um, confidential. And again, they have to be, because otherwise, you know how it, I mean, no successful investigation in the world that I'm aware of is entirely in the open. That's simply impossible. It's, it's just not the way things work. So I agree during with you. investigations, I, yeah. it's I'm very not, unfortunate yeah. that you don't get any information. So people might feel like nothing is going on because nothing is being said. I agree with you. And actually, that's sort of, uh, I, I share that perspective to a degree as well, that you can't really know what's happening all the time and it wouldn't be appropriate for the average sort of Lebanese audience to know the 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 investigation it's not there the investigation itself should take time but the reason i think it became part of the story is that the first sort of prosecutor in a way opened up the door to that sort of story and and suggested that there was a deliberate slowing down and that no progress was being made but he also suggested that it may have to do with not necessarily the prosecutor it's not a personality issue or or sort of a um, it's not sort of how you handle it it's more of bury this for now. And and that's the suggestion I think many Lebanese took, which was by 2009, and I, of course, it, is, it is important to note that yes, the STL does not really officially begin in 2005. That's absolutely true. Four years later, the STL is starting on a footing that is very, uh, the expectations have changed. And I think the, and I think this would be a fair thing to say that because of so many assassinations that took place, after Rafi Hadidi, or even after that window from 2004 to late 2005, it almost seemed like this tribunal would not do that, would not help in preventing further political assassinations. And that in itself seemed to almost limit the expectation to that maybe a few people will be tried in absentia later. And that, that, in effect, is what's happening on Friday. Uh, well, no. The, the judgment will be issued on Friday, but that's in effect what started in 2014, in January 2014. Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't seem to be the STL that I remember, or let's say the prosecution, the early months, and of course those four gen- the intelligence officers that were arrested at the beginning and then deemed sort of, uh, it wasn't sort of part of the jurisdiction that sort of, it's time that they leave. And that, that seemed to kind of, I think that shook a lot of people to their core, that what is this really all about? So that's, again, coming from a side of somebody who, who would turn to uh, a criminal court or turn to international justice where none is being applied at home, but then seeing it sort of heavily watered down. Would you agree with that, that it's sort of, it is, it never was what people thought it was, that maybe at its core it was never meant to be what people hoped it would be, that it really is just a, a trial about one crime, and maybe a few that sort of started before and after. It's not about helping Lebanon per se, or it's not even about preventing further political assassinations. It's really, at the end of the day, just about that assassination and the ones that link to it immediately. But it's not, it's not meant to turn the page the way I think many ex-Yugoslavia countries succeeded in turning the page from sort of warlike activity 
to one of where you don't really have stories about that kind of political violence today. It's a very broad... But we have frozen, we have frozen conflict. Frozen conflict. Oh, frozen conflict in, in former Yugoslavia. Absolutely. You've got more people denying crimes that occurred and have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt in court today than you did five years ago. Because it's politically expedient. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, don't even get me started on the topic of the former Yugoslavia. It's absolutely dire. It's dire. And a lot of people would lose faith on the basis of that mm. in the whole project of international criminal justice. Because right now, the situation in the former Yugoslavia, if you ask a person on the street, A, either they don't believe what the ICTY found to be true, or worse. So you would find maybe 5% of the population who even have any positive thoughts about the tribunal among any group at all in the former Yugoslavia. So some would say it's pointless, but I would always point people to the longer view. Because this is, you know, uh, international criminal justice is something that was, had a blip in the, in the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials and set very important principles that these trials would not stand up to today's scrutiny. I mean, these trials were nowhere near the respect mm. of human rights we would expect from an international court, or a national court for that matter, because they were set up in a very different time, in a very different way as victor's justice, right? Yeah. Yet they set some very important principles that, that we apply to this day. But then there was, but then there was nothing during the Cold War. There was absolutely nothing, right? We had the Geneva Convention, we had the Genocide Convention, but so what? Nobody applied them. And there's a couple of very interesting documentaries which talk about this. One is called uh, Memory of Justice, and it's five hours long. And I actually <laughs> saw it in one sitting in Amsterdam because that was at the time the only way to see it at the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam, which is a fascinating thing. There should and be a, there so should be a they, trailer. The wheels of justice are slow, as is this movie. Stick around for five yeah, hours. <laughs> but it's a fascinating movie yeah. because I thought, okay, I'll I'll go and and you know I'll leave when I get too tired, and I just you know stayed throughout because it's fascinating because it's it was filmed in 1975. Mm. And uh, the filmmaker, Max Ophuls, I think was his name, um, he, um, a German filmmaker, he went around and interviewed many people. He interviewed unreformed Nazis. He interviewed people born during the war. He interviewed people born after the war. He interviewed many different people to understand how, you know, what their attitude was towards the war and what their attitude was towards the Nuremberg trials. And guess what? It, it was almost impossible to detect that they had any impact at all at that particular stage, except on a small group of people. 60 years later, 70 years later, they're the absolute symbol, right? Of, of justice. So, Things move in different ways. Humanity doesn't progress in a, in a linear, you know, upward fashion. We go in stops and starts, and 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 we, you know, this particular um, the international criminal justice has started developing in 1993, effectively with the creation of the ICTY. Again, 
Nuremberg set the principles, but it wasn't until 1993 that there was a modern-day development of international criminal justice. So we're basically a little bit under 30 years into this project. But with that, with, well, with that said, with yeah. that said, and I know that, I mean, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you I like this long view and I like putting it in perspective. And I also appreciate these comparisons. And there isn't much to compare with, to be honest. ICTY is that sort of more obvious example. And I, and I like that you said that the, the links are quite natural anyway. So it kind of makes more sense to look at the ICTY. But I can't help escape that feeling that it's just not what Lebanese hoped for. Now, that said, that could be just an emotional expectation from dealing with a, living in a country that's too used to political violence. But I think there was this sort of high hope that things like this would cease. And um, I, I, I'm getting from what you're saying, and I, I think I may actually reach that conclusion myself, having sort of lived in Lebanon for too long and having having maybe ha had that desire myself that you can't trust the Lebanese courts, you can't trust the Lebanese investigation to handle these assassinations, and for, rightly so. You'd want an international body to assume control here, and you'd want the trial to happen abroad. But even then, I was watching the uh, snippets of uh, victims and people that lost loved ones at, at The Hague, and it's quite, rem I mean, it's, it's a very emotional journey. You go back to those incidents 15 years ago and you realize that these have been part of Lebanese life ever since. So, you know, I, they're not returning to a country that moved on from that moment. They're returning to a country that has adjusted itself over time to that recurring political assassination and terrorism. So that's, that's why I, I can't escape that feeling that it just... I, I personally assumed wrongly that the STL, in, 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 in its final sort of stages, would have those moments that most of the world witnessed, at least when it comes to the ICTY, that we would see people standing trial, that there would be sort of visible justice, visible in the sense that somebody will serve a sentence somewhere at some point, even that's not happening. And I, I guess that's the sort of, that's the novice sort of level of understanding, at least when it comes to why it just doesn't feel like it did its job. Even if it is doing its job the way you just said, Friday, I can't, I can't help it. Friday doesn't seem that important. And at the same time, it clearly is. I mean, this is a tribunal. There is a, there is a verdict. There is a judgment, all that. I mean, there, there's judges. You can watch it on TV, watch it on Twitter. I mean, sometimes I log in and I just sort of, I'm curious at what's happening. But not in a way as a citizen, having sort of suffered a lot in terms of just witnessing recent Lebanese history, doesn't seem to satisfy much. Can I, can I approach that with you? That topic of why it just doesn't resonate and it seems like a blip. And, and is, that, is that really an issue in terms of the answers are not at the STL, the, S the answers are in Lebanon. That this is just beyond the STL, something that Lebanese have to deal with. It's their country. STL is it not going to come. It is, yeah. it is it's true. I mean, it is beyond the STL, not so much because it's, I mean, the STL is definitely Lebanese as much as it is international. Yes, right, right. right. It was established yeah. for Lebanon 
you know, at Lebanon's request, yes. it is financially uh, uh, supported by Lebanon, 49%. So Lebanese judges is, and, and yeah. their, yeah, yes. Lebanese judges, a lot of Lebanese uh, staff, mm-hmm. great colleagues, and so on. So it is a Lebanese institution in a way. It's a mm-hmm. Lebanese and an international institution. Right. I, from a personal point of view, like if we're talking about, you know, like a, a, a human dimension of this whole thing, yes, the idea that an accused person who, who might be convicted is actually sitting there to receive the judgment is certainly the best option, mm-hmm. right? That is what everybody's first choice would be. Mm-hmm. In absentia proceedings, which exist in many national systems around the world, Lebanon included, but not at the international level up until right. the STL, yes. are only the second best. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so some people would argue that there shouldn't be trials in absentia, but that's mostly people coming from common law countries that are not used to having them in their own national systems and who fundamentally feel that there is somehow a violation of human rights. Mm-hmm. It's very much a common view of an obsessive proceedings. Very strong view. And which is why there were no inobsessive proceedings at, at uh, for example, the ICTY, which also is in a civil law country, if you will. I mean, over Yugoslavia, was very similar to Lebanon in terms of its legal system and not similar to the U.S. or anything like this. So, but, so people frown upon uh, inobsessive proceedings for that reason. People who believe that it's a good idea to have an absentia proceedings under these circumstances say that it's because otherwise you would only have the indictments, such as you had, for example, Mladic, who was recently found guilty, right? Yes. He was um, he was a fugitive for 16 years. Right? He was a fugitive for a whole 16 years. Kadesh was a fugitive for 11 years, right? Yeah. And so, and there were a bunch of others who were fugitives for many years. And so some people say that all you had during those years was the indictment, which had no, you know, elements from the defense or any exonerating circumstances or anything like this. So basically the prosecution's view. So to, according to them, it's a much, and, and plus you had the victims who were waiting to, to for somebody to get arrested, right? Right. So the proponents of the in absentia proceedings as a second best, again, no one would argue that this is a, that the best solution, right? Everybody would argue only that it's a second best solution. So the proponents of this second best solution would tell you at least this evidence is getting tested in court. And they, it can result in an acquittal or, an, or a conviction. I cannot stress that enough. We simply don't know until we hear what the judges have to say on Friday. We simply do not know whether one or two or three or four of these individuals will be convicted or Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so at least the test, the evidence will have been rigorously tested. Right? So if it results in a conviction, it's not insignificant in terms of what actually is determined to have happened. But I would go one step further, and I would tell you that there are cases where there were acquittals in the ICTY, where the judges have established that certain crimes had taken place, 
And they described those crimes in great detail because they were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that these crimes with these victims had taken place. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. They simply could not arrive at the conclusion on the basis of the evidence that the person who was in front of them was the one who can be held responsible. And, and in, in these cases, it was because it was somebody who seemed too far removed and they couldn't link them. You see what I mean? It yes. wasn't, it's much easier to prove the responsibility of a perpetrator on the ground that a victim would have seen and can identify by simply pointing to them in the courtroom and describing what happened and, and, and so forth. Then you put a commander who was sitting in his office 500 miles away communicating orders in not necessarily certain terms, right? Yeah. So there's that too. And that, that also comes up a lot in terms of uh, you know, lack of understanding why this and why that. Prosecution can only work with the evidence that they have, that they've managed to collect, right? And that points in a certain direction. And so when you're looking at a war crimes case, for example, everybody knows who committed the crimes. There isn't a war on this planet and people don't have a very good idea who committed the crimes. We know who was in charge of the territory at the time. We know who the commanders were because they're usually boasting. Mm-hmm. They're not even behind, right? Mm-hmm. So in a war crimes case, everybody knows who's responsible. But you can't. if you cannot prove it, you cannot prove it. And this is the problem, and that becomes an even more significant disconnect, because if you're talking about, again, war crimes issues, like how can anybody be in any doubt that Serbs controlled a particular area and then committed the crimes within that area, or Croats, or someone else, right? It's, it's always like everybody knows, and I put that in quotes, because we read the news, we, right. see, the, you know, we see the footage, but, but that's different is proven in court or what can be proven in court absolutely and is there any is there any reflection at least when it comes to a parallel institution that is not there to serve justice but is eager let's say to help ensure that there is some justice meaning that the eu did play a positive role in getting the respective countries in former yugoslavia to at least go partially in that direction and sort of help deliver justice, even if it's true what you said earlier, that it's not the the justice that maybe everyone hoped for at the beginning, but there's some some steps were taken in the right direction. Even if you have conspiracies, even if you have people that look at it today and sort of laugh it off, the fact is there was a trial that, that succeeded. And the ICTY, I, I mean, it, it seems to be, even when the standards may not be that high, and you eloquently describe that this is a new terrain, and that there's a long pause during the Cold War, but if these are the examples that we have, the ICTY is the standard. And there is something there. There's something there. In the Lebanese context, there's no former countries to work with. There's groups and groups that have to, in a way, get along within the Lebanese context for Lebanon to work. And at times, they often unite in strange ways, and they govern Lebanon, maybe mismanage, govern, mismanage the Lebanese state to a point, and eventually people started protesting not too long ago. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, domestic issues that are way beyond the STL's jurisdiction when it comes to the Lebanese story. But that said, there's no incentive for groups to maybe see eye to eye and at least try to work with the STL in that larger story of justice. Is that a fair, fair comparison? 
that ex-Yugoslavia had the incentive, where Lebanon, Lebanese groups that may have been involved, or even, let's say, regional countries that may have sort of participated, did not see any incentive to, in a way, make sure that there would be the kind of justice people hoped for, at least at the beginning. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, look, the European Union played a crucial role in, in getting people, uh, getting the fugitives arrested and delivered to the ICTY. Mm-hmm. And that was because the prosecutor at the time, she basically achieved that. I mean, she yeah. made it a point of getting the European Union to assist, and she shamed them, for lack of a better word, yes. into doing it, honestly, because there were many yeah. politics. Yeah. I, I, I was a spokesperson for, for, for Carla Del Ponte for a couple of years and attended a lot of meetings with her and various politicians who, I can tell you, were not appreciative of uh, that conditionality after a while. They with it because they had their own issues that they right. wanted to put forward and, and, and you know they felt that the ICT line that respect was an obstacle at some point. Yeah. So but what they did achieve is that all these fugitives came into custody. Yes. And that's yes. great. But because it was an imposed thing from the outside and never genuinely came from within right. is my personal assessment of why we have the situation we have now. Because in my view, if they were going to do that, what they should have done is they should have gone a step further. They should have gone and insisted that the media might devote at least part of its time to a uh, an accurate representation of what's going on at the ICTY and right, things like right. this. Like they shouldn't yeah, have right, left right. it. They just they they basically beat the powers that be into submission by conditioning them with money, by conditioning them with accession talks and all kinds of other things. They basically beat them into, and I, and I really mean that, in, into obliging the tribunal and delivering the fugitives, but not for the right reasons. And these politicians mm, would even, mm. they would say, they would even be so cynical as to say it. Well, we arrested such and such because otherwise we wouldn't get this, so just bear with us, you know? We will deliver, it's almost like they were delivering these poor you know, martyrs to the altar of the, of, you know, the great progress, right? Yeah. And, and that's backfiring now. I mean, I, 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 I think it's fantastic that the ICTY was able to fulfill its mandate because this is what leaves a legacy, because there were no trials in Exentia, so if these yes. people had not been arrested, nothing would have happened, right? Right, right. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm very happy that the ICTY was able to fulfill its mandate due to these arrests. But at the same time, unfortunately, in terms of long-term hmm. uh, reconciliation, in terms of long-term, uh, there was no long-term investment by these countries. Not at all. I like that. I like that view that it's that it happened, and it happened for the wrong reasons, at least in the well-being of, at least when it comes to justice, that sort of the, the word mm-hmm. itself, that these countries did not do it for the sake of justice. They did it for economic incentives. So the source may be, yeah, the source is off, but at the same time, there were people sent that committed crimes and they faced some form of justice at the end. In the Lebanese case, neither one applies. There's no economic incentive (laughs) and no one is sent. So it's almost like 
it's the both options apply to a degree in Lebanon. Neither one is good, and we took both. <laughs> so I mean, that that is is that really where it comes from? The disappointment, at least. And I mean, I'm asking you to. It's a strange question for for me to ask you why I'm disappointed, but. <laughs> I mean, I know that's that's a weird way of phrasing it, but is, do you think that maybe having having experienced both sides, is that sort of the the thing that maybe is the most visible disadvantage to the Lebanese story? Is that we're not even getting to see the accused face trial? That it's that kind of level of expectation that was also removed, and now we're we have the second best option that you mentioned earlier, which is this abstentia that did not happen in the ICTY. Do you think that's really the core of it, that it's it's almost at that level, that we don't see it happening the way we would have wanted it? Quite probably. But I would also wonder, and I'm very curious, and I cannot wait for that reason as well to see the judgment, because I also am very interested to see, uh, depending on the outcome, what the reactions will be. Yeah, I'm very interested to see, like right. because there will be a lot of, you know, we've, we've seen the trial, right? There will be no surprise on Friday in terms of the evidence that was presented. There's not going to be some new thing that's going to appear in the judgment that nobody had heard about yeah. Yeah, yeah. if they had followed the trial. I mean, it, it might be if they had not followed the trial, but if they had followed the trial, there will be any surprises, right? We don't yes. know whether the judges will determine these individuals to be innocent or guilty, and of course there's an appeal process after that that is a possibility, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how the judges have analyzed this evidence, how many people actually take the time to read and digest this judgment, and I don't have any illusions that an average person is going to read the whole judgment, because yeah. they, they rarely do, I mean, even lawyers rarely do, right? So <laughs> If it's a very long, especially if it's a very long document, which, you know, these judgments at the international courts usually are. However, there are summaries. And, of yes. course, we will do our best to actually try to help people, you know, like navigate around this vast amount of information that will inevitably come out. Yes. And it will be very yes. interesting to me to see how people respond. Now, again, the majority, unfortunately, will get all of their information from the media and only from the media, which may or may not be accurate. And mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that everybody's going, I mean, there's, you know, I've been working with the media and these courts for the better part of the past 20 years. Yes. And inaccuracies yes. are very often a consequence of a simple misunderstanding and a simple lack of time and, 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 and resources to go into the depth that people need to go into. Um, in order to understand these proceedings. In a smaller yes. number of cases, yes. they're, they're, of course, a consequence of agendas. I actually right? I appreciate the STL's media service because I've actually learned a lot just by exploring their website and their Twitter feed. So I actually, I mean, without that, I think it would be a lost cause altogether. At least there's that mm -hmm. counterbalance in terms of the actual facts. So no, it's, it's, served, it's served a very useful function. So that's why I'm curious to see whether the disappointment you speak of mm. might be perhaps alleviated. I mean, I would love to have a conversation with you after you've <laughs> had a chance to see what's going on and to see oh, whether there is anything in there that you find as a Lebanese yes. useful. Do you see yes. what I mean? As, as by way of information, by way of, you know, right. process. Right. 
you know, yeah, it's, these are, I know these are sort of very big questions and I know they're beyond, you know, some, some of them are even beyond the last sort of, uh, eight, nine, 10 years, at least when it comes to all of these sort of things that have happened ever since the STL was established. I mean, Lebanon has changed fundamentally. Lebanese politics have shifted dramatically and Rafiq Hadidi's story for better or worse is now one of the past. So 15 years is a long time for Lebanon. So this, this, in a way, I think maybe that's part of it as well. We're going back in time to a phase that, even though it sort of lingers, it's not, it's not the main story any longer. And may, maybe that's part of it. Sort of, there has been some distance. But that's part of it because I mean, look, Syria. I mean, Syria is is like looms large. You know, of how yeah. can we talk about justice when? Syria. Of course, of course. That, that's a, I mean, yeah. It's, it's just, to me, it's even, it's an affront to, to humanity, what's going on there, and the fact that it's going on with such impunity. Yeah. And for so long. But again, because I'm notoriously the optimist, I also listened to an interesting webinar a few weeks ago um, by a number of uh, three, three academics who were, um, the webinar was organized by a research institute in, in The Hague, with which we work closely, called mm. the DMC Astro mm. Institute. And they were talking about all the changes that have been taking place in international law as a consequence of Syria. Now, the title, when I first, I was like, oh, I'm going to hear something super depressing. It wasn't, because they were talking about how, because of the impasse at the Security Council, the General Assembly ended up establishing the mechanism for Syria, right? Which is now collecting evidence and packaging cases and sending it to local authorities, which has already resulted in, in five cases, I believe, that were brought under, in most cases, universal jurisdiction and so forth. There is CJA, which is a unique institution so far, the Coalition for International Justice and Accountability, I think is the full name which is an NGO that has been collecting evidence about crimes in Syria for years. And, and a vast majority of that evidence has been preserved properly and transferred to the UN IIIM and from the IIIM to national authorities. And in some cases, CJA directly worked with national authorities, again, to facilitate these cases, and so on and so forth. So these people spent an hour and a half talking about positive developments from their perspective that were that came out of sheer frustration with the fact that the current political structures at the international level have failed us. And I found that as a very interesting take on things because basically they're saying if it wasn't for this mess, right, yeah. what we might have is a tribunal for Syria maybe that tribunal for Syria would not live up to the expectations of people in the same way that most of these tribunals don't live up to the expectations of people because the expectations are always so uh, enormous, right? Yeah. And so I find that point of view a very interesting one. So maybe, maybe the frustration that a lot of people feel in Lebanon, which we could also see in you know October and November particular of course yeah, right of course, yeah. maybe that will give rise to something 
uh, um, positive. Maybe the younger generation will be able to create something interesting, something new, uh, something slightly different. Maybe. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not, you know, I don't know, but sure. I am the eternal sure. optimist in terms of uh, um, perhaps there is, you know, there is a chance that something uh, will be different. You know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you mentioned October last year and the ongoing demonstrations since and it's one of accountability there's sort of eloquence and determination for justice and at the bare minimum dignity between citizens and their state but it's not the first time Lebanese have sort of championed justice and accountability and that's why I kind of I see it as something that maybe uh well, for better or worse, it's uh, it's one of Lebanon's major problems since the end of the civil war. No accountability and very little justice. And even when justice is delivered, and I think we may agree on this, it's not necessarily the expectation of what people demand today. And, th and therefore, therefore, October is beyond anyone's jurisdiction. This is a population demanding fundamental change. So maybe the answers are there. But I... Before, I'll, I mean, I've already taken too much time. I'll just want to touch on something that is important. And in a way, it's kind of how our friendship started a few weeks ago on, on uh, communications online. Uh, it's the lesser known subject when it comes to the STL's involvement in Lebanese universities, or for that matter, just international criminal law. I was surprised to learn that prior to this, there was no international criminal law courses being offered in Lebanese universities. Or if they were offered, they were not structured in a way that would sort of encourage students to even travel and get to see The Hague. And I think there's something very special in that. And I hope I got the number right. It's over a thousand students that have participated in this program. Yep. That's, yep. that's quite... In fact, almost 1,200 graduated from it. I think the number of who enrolled, but then people, of course, some drop out. But the number who enrolled is like over 1,500. But 1,200 wow. grad. 1,200 graduated from it, meaning that they actually sat through all the lectures and, and, you know, a whole bunch of them took the final exam and all that. And then, uh, what, 120, I think, traveled to The Hague as part of the program over the years? That's, I mean, so, that shows that there's an appetite, at least when it comes to students and what they want to learn, at least when beyond the STL, just international criminal law and its application. But can I can I ask you... Do you think the answers are there in that it, it takes a population to see the, the advantages of that kind of justice, learn it, explore it, and then take those ideas home and hopefully one day have that situation where you don't need a special tribunal for Lebanon. A country will be able to handle its own investigations. I mean, is, is that the long view here, that these are the tools students should take with them and apply at home? It, it's, that is one of the long views, but I think because I, I also teach at AUB, I teach uh, public international law at, at AUB, and I always tell my students the same um, thing. If you learn nothing from this course other than to read the news in a very critical way, not to take at face value everything that you see, to question things that you see, to if you're interested in something, to actually research it in much more depth and not rely on headlines and, 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 and YouTube uh, clips and all this kind of stuff. 
that's already sufficient. Mm, mm, so it's not about, you know, and that's the way I like to see that course. And in fact, that's the feedback we get from the students. It's not because we think everybody needs to become a specialist in international criminal law. Of course not. They won't. <laughs> but if it opens another window, yes. if it gives them yes. information that they otherwise, because a lot of this, uh, like international law, the only thing that people think about when they, they say international law is war, right? Right. Another thing right. that I tell my students is, is every time you pick up the phone to call your friend overseas, that's international law because there is the telecommunications rules that are being applied. There's all kinds of things that are at play. Every time you pick up and you buy a pen that was produced halfway across the world, that's international law somewhere in there because it's a whole bunch of agreements that have led to that. So the SDL and is so as important so as buying a pen? No, come on. It can't be the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very no, – uh, it's a I lot of pens. <laughs> It's building exactly yeah. a lot of it. It's building the idea behind all of this is is um, teaching people critical thinking, exposing yeah. them to different yeah. styles of teaching because they hear from professionals, from practitioners, they hear from academics, so they see how different people approach things. There's so much to be learned from even just that interaction, yeah. right? right? And this yeah. is exactly right. the feedback we've been getting from students. And I'll tell you my favorite part, um, and that's something that's been actually highlighted by, by both students and professors who participate in. Um, and in fact, one of the professors said, one of the professors referred to this as the best reconciliation project since the Civil War. You know, I saw this, this quote. I, it's quite impressive. Yeah, so there, so it's, it's, it's healing wounds. But do, you know, but do you know why? Because the way that the whole thing is run is that students go to each other's universities to attend lectures. So all students from all 11 universities get together on usually a Wednesday evening, mm. and they sit in an amphitheater of one of their universities. And students consistently come back to us with comments on the course saying that that's one of the hidden kind of benefits of the course that they weren't even really aware of when they right. signed up is this notion that they go to each other's universities and actually mix with students from other parts of Lebanon, which they just won't necessarily have an opportunity to do. Right, 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 right. And they learn so much more even through that interaction mm. than anything possibly offered through just, you know, textbook kind of stuff. So there's that. Another project that we've done also is to, uh, we have facilitated the translation of, of uh, the first, believe it or not, full textbook on international criminal law in the Arabic language. Oh, wow. This is, so this is born out of the STL's sort of, uh, this is a, an indirect benefit. I guess from the STL, it's, yeah. like it's, it's, it's given this yeah. opportunity. That's quite that's quite yeah. fundamental. You know, I actually remember taking a course at AUB. I think it was public international law, but this is probably <laughs> it was not. I mean, I this is going a while. This is a while back, uh, and I and I remember the um, yeah the curiosity was there, but there was also that admission that this is sort of. I mean, this is more theoretical in a sense. So I it's good to hear that there's kind of that that added benefit where students are mingling in ways that are not common and then people sort of come out of their comfort zones and go to another university and in that sense helping heal wounds that 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 does serve its purpose 
I, but yeah. don't, also, don't forget that Lebanon is also, um, because SDL applies international law and Lebanese law, right? Right, yes, yeah. In that sense, Lebanese law has entered the international realm because the definition of terrorism that the judges have come up with in, in, in 2011 in this very important and controversial decision mm -hmm. uh, in which they decided that terrorism is defined under international law and terrorism in times of peace and so forth. Um, these are very important things which will reverberate yes. in this, again, in this, in this area. And this is, again, I... This is where there are so many different elements we can talk about, none of which will probably be something that you're going to get, you know, you're going to say, yes, this is, what, you know, this is why this is important. But it is on some level important, right? And so it's, it's or, or I should say, it's an open, this is not why the tribunal was created, but right. since it was created, Let's make the best of this. Is, is, is how you know I would look at it. And right? I think it also maybe it maybe sheds light on the STL in ways that critics of the STL can benefit from, and that they'll mm -hmm. actually see that this is actually something that's not harming Lebanon's interests. Because there's that other side of the equation that you have, sort of constant criticism of the STL coming from Lebanese quarters. So there's sort mm -hmm. of maybe there's that benefit as well that, in a way, it's just showing the facts, laying it out there. And I think that that yeah. might be the best tool in, in a sense where education is thrown into the mix. And if you're one of the lecturers involved, then I think students are in for a treat. You don't mind uh, talking, which I enjoy. And I'm, I've, I've learned a lot just by speaking with you. Olga, I, I want to wrap it up with maybe a more sensitive subject. Um, before we started recording, we just sent a few messages back and forth. And I asked you if it would be okay to address something that relates to your personal life. And you mentioned that you lost a dear friend in the, not the Lebanese context, but former Yugoslavia. And you've been involved in international law, your professional life. And I mean, it goes without saying, I mean, my life has been sort of thrown into a very messy situation. Again, this is not part of the SDL's jurisdiction, but I think maybe we share this sort of hope that justice is delivered in some way at some time for people we love or people we care about. Um, has that contributed to the way you see the ICTY, the STL, and, and maybe your, your own personal expectations? Is it something that maybe made you reconsider certain things about international criminal law and really what a trial is intended to do, at least when it comes to trying to heal wounds. I mean, I would like, if it's okay, just your own sort of, your own reflection as a result of having suffered loss due to political violence. I would say yes, definitely. It's also made me realize, uh, first of all, the, 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 uh, the person who was very close to me who was assassinated, there the perpetrators were never identified. I know who it was. It was the state of Serbia at the time. There's no doubt. And it wasn't only him. It was also 18 other people who were assassinated in the, in the last throes of the Milosevic era in, uh, in 98, 98, 99. Um, and 
for a lot, for some of them, perpetrators were identified. For others, but not the real ones, the direct mm. perpetrators, right? Mm. Not the, uh, the ones who actually ordered the crimes. Those right. have, uh, you know, they're still either free or have died natural deaths. But um, so yes, it's it's a it's. I also see the limitations. Mm. Of these uh, of justice, yes. I see that yes. sometimes it's just not attainable under the circumstances. It's just it's just impossible. Yeah. Cool. But at the same time, I am a strong believer in the need to keep fighting for it. And so, you know, it's I've lost a lot of friends to that whole insanity that was going on in my country. Or, you know, people who died in the war, but then people who died due to political violence, as I mentioned. Um, I, I've, in, in, and in some instances, I've even, you know, like people very close to me were actually, because I was also very politically active. I was mm. organized, you know, together with these people, demonstrations against that same government. So yes. I survived, they didn't. Right. Right. Because I, would, I left the country at the end of 1997 for the last time. And if I had not, I probably or possibly would not necessarily be here. But there is that, you know, it's like when you lose a lot of people who have been very close to you but, and fought for the same things, and then they die because of those things, there is another element of, there's a, a, another whole level of, of, course, of yeah. determination to kind of, I can't do anything about that situation. I'm not in a position to do that, but I, I am in a position to do, you know, to fight for what I believe in by working in international political justice and, and, and trying to push that project, if you will, to advance that project in, in, in that sense. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. So, so it steered you in that direction. It kind of more. It made you more. The purpose kind of became justice, despite against the odds that it's that it's yeah. critical, regardless of whether or not it may heal your own personal wounds. At the end of the day, it's 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 the end goal. And I, I you know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the feeling of you know talking to victims, for example, who who of these crimes that we're all dealing with brings it home. Like when you said, you know, normalizing things that you know people go on and, and, and do webinars while there's explosions. You know, you sit at the ICTY if you're working at the tribunal. You've got a CCTV in your office. My office, I had a CCTV because. I had to know what was going on, yeah. and I'm yeah. having my sandwich for lunch while there is an exhumation video on being yeah. presented yeah. in court. And so, <laughs> it, 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 you know, at some point, you wonder, you know, you you have to ask yourself, is this normal? I'm going to say something, and this is maybe something you've experienced. I think definitely you've experienced. Anytime I'm stuck in a, let's say, a dinner, and it's a, it, let's just say it's, it's a sushi dinner. I'm putting it in the Lebanese context. So it's, it has to be Lebanese <laughs> context for sushi. And somebody wants to approach the very de delicate terrain. They want to ask, you know, 
about my father and they want to ask very personal questions. And I see sort of the chopsticks going to the ginger and the wasabi. And I always make it clear. It's like there are certain, certain dishes that don't sit well with this conversation. You can't have sushi and discuss Arab, like Middle East politics and be taken seriously. <laughs> and especially when it comes to accountability and justice as those chopsticks are dipping into the soy sauce. No, no, no. Meet me at the street corner, call me, but not with sushi. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be very, you're eating a sandwich, chewing on the sandwich, digesting while it's a horrible scene happening in front of you. Yeah, it is. It's a very bizarre moment. They, Most people would probably be like, how could you even conceive of food? Of but it's because, you know, after years and years and years of, you know, working on that, you, just you kind of to become, to you just adjust to it and, and it's just another thing that's happening, right? Yeah. But yeah. to never adjust, ever, is the, the victims, the survivors, right? The ones who are there, who are looking at, you know, the, the, the look of hope in their eyes for what this institution can give them is just, Absolutely not. I, I don't mean this particular, but any any such institution. Yeah. And that gives you a responsibility that is huge, because they, somehow you need to deliver something to that hope, right? Yeah, it's well so, said, Olga. Uh, before we go, just a final point. You mentioned that you did work with my father, or you at least you met him, and you had discussions yes. with him. Can I just ask you? If, if there's any particular memory or particular sort of conversation, it can be pleasant or unpleasant. I'm not particularly nice as well. So if you can mention something that's unpleasant. I don't mind. No, he was, he was, no, he was I met him a couple of times back in uh, 2011. Mm. And it was very interesting conversations about these topics. He was quite in um, because I had come with this background of the ICTY and then right. the I was fairly new at the STL at that time. Mm. But then we were trying to organize, uh, there was a, a very uh, big conference that we were organizing in the early 2011 about international criminal justice to kind of introduce this concept to a broad public without necessarily mm. only focusing mm. on the STL and so forth. So right. there isn't right. one particular conversation I would, I would necessarily highlight, but it just, it was I always found it very, like the, the few conversations that I had with him were extremely interesting. He had, I was learning a lot at the time about Lebanon. I'm still learning. And the more I learn, the less I know. But at the time, it was particularly interested, you know, interesting to, to speak with him and kind of, you know, to get, get his uh, perspective on, on, on these things. And mm. then, you know, he was, again, he was interested in hearing about... Um, these other experiences because he didn't have any, you know, knowledge of them. Why should he? Right, this, right, this right, right. He wouldn't have ever. And this is this is why I, you know, keep saying it because it's um, in my conversations with people like him and, and, and like other, you know, educated, intelligent Lebanese people, knowledgeable of Lebanon. I found that these analogies helped a lot in understanding. Mm the context of something that's otherwise very dry and very, uh, as, as I mentioned before we started recording, international criminal justice, when you're talking about the law, is extremely dry. Because it's very technical. The law is yes. very technical. Right. 
the right. finer points of like when I try to teach my students, you cannot say this is genocide because proving genocide is a very complex thing. You know, that's actually very fair. That's a fair way of putting it, that the emotions are so high, but the details are so dry. <laughs> so yeah. it's there is a disparity and there. It's, yeah. it's huge because Absolutely. people expect institutions to deliver excitement. Right. We're not in the business of delivering excitement. I mean... Yes, when a victim sees a perpetrator in the dock and when they hear a conviction, of course it, it, it's an emotionally extremely charged moment. That right. is that is that goes without saying. But then it's also emotional for anybody involved. But in between these moments, yeah. I mean you can spend days yeah. in court where lawyers <laughs> are debating finer points of law that you feel are so far removed from any reality. That you have to wonder, like, you know, so this is the, the challenge. It's a challenge. And also maybe the bigger challenge is that those dry moments, those very endless pages of details, uh, don't necessarily end up being the only outcome of a tragedy. And that they're matched with some hope. And I, I like the way you described it. You see that sort of in the eyes of whether it's the students you've interacted with or just the public at large yearning for accountability and justice. Um, I, I share the same view. And um, I've lost too many people I know in the Lebanese context without any form of trial or justice. So unjust loss, untimely unjust loss, that blend is, is particular to modern Lebanese history. And uh, that's, I think, why maybe the expectations are always high, that if there's going to be a trial, at least... At least it's the trial that could maybe help heal wounds, even if it's not the intended purpose. Maybe that's where it comes from. It's uh, having been too familiar with this form of tragedy. But mm -hmm. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being very patient with me. Um, I'm going to link up the sections about education. And uh, I, it's, it's an impressive component. And I wish I could go back in time and just take a course with you instead. I don't remember the name of the professor I had with AUB. I think it's before, it's before all of this started. So I, I could, you know, I wouldn't fit in today, but back then I may have fit in. And uh, you're very kind. And I look forward to seeing you tomorrow on another webinar. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think there's two with Nadim Shahadi and with Michael Young. Yeah, so yes. I mean... If feel free to copy paste this episode and send it to them and you can like take a break. <laughs> Have a day off. Yeah, exactly, just broadcast it. But just yeah. one other thing that I wanted to actually, I, I wonder whether you've realized, um, whether you've uh, realized what, what's going on with that because when I first arrived, there was maybe one organization that I was aware of that was dealing with the issues of the missing from the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Fast forward yes. nearly 10 years. There are many organizations now. There is even a law that was recently passed, right? That was that is establishing a commission at the state level to establish the, the number of missing and so forth. Mm. The reason I point to that is going back to what we spoke about a bit earlier, this progression that doesn't necessarily always go in the way you might expect it. So maybe you would expect that immediately after the war, people would be demanding, you know, to know about the missing, and then that would weigh, you know, weigh with time. Whereas here, what's been happening is the opposite. People may have been, for whatever reason, 
pushing things under the carpet and, 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 and engaging in collective amnesia, as I always hear my Lebanese friends uh, um, call that particular state. But then you see in the past 10 years even, right, you see an emergence of ever more people wanting to that for that to finally be resolved. And we're talking about civil war, not talking about... Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I find that fascinating because I think that that's, again, a reason for hope because things sometimes take time. Look at Cambodia. It took them 30 years to come, you know, to, to, to make it possible, not, not because of the international community as much as because of Cambodia itself. Sure. And yet they did establish a court and people, you know, and if you look, look at the victim's reaction to the judgment, the, the first judgment that was issued, you would think two years have passed, not 35. I, I completely agree with you. And it is impressive to see that these NGOs have become more visible than they used to be. And they're taking a, a bolder stand. I will also say, and with the same same sentiment, I will say also that uh, 45 years after the civil war began, um, it's only when the Syrian regime is under a bit of pressure that Lebanese feel sort of freer to express this concern. And without accountability in Syria, you will not see one of those families satisfied in Lebanon. So I think it comes down to it's, it's a healthy discussion that's finally happening, but it happens 45 years later. And it also happens when there's an expectation that the Syrian regime is not going anywhere anytime soon. And, and therefore, it'll just be left as a discussion rather than proper account. And I think that's the story. Lebanon has had so many repeated uh, 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 incidents of pain and agony, violence and war and missing. And I mean, the civil war ended in 1989, 1990. We're in 2020 and half of Beirut blew up this afternoon, probably due to, Mm. we don't know what happened today, but speculation is that it's just pure, pure mismanagement. I mean, it could Mm. end up being literally pure mismanagement at best. Or at worst, mm, it's mm. still part of the geopolitical story. So both options are horrible. And in that sense, yeah. I mean, that's, I think Cambodia, I think, and I'm assuming Cambodians now look back at in the past and they think of it as something that is part of the past, that they see something in, in the future that looks brighter. Lebanese don't have that. And Lebanon is a slippery mm. slope into the abyss. And it, I mean, Today's event is one of many events that have happened where 2020 is just as bad. Um, I mean, incidents like today look like they could have happened in, in 2005, could have happened in the 1980s, could have happened in the 1970s. So there's that. There's that. I, th- I think the patience of Lebanese is quite impressive, that they can still talk about things that happened 40 years ago and still care. And that's quite, I think that's remarkable, actually. But at the same time, there's, I think, very little hope that the missing will be held to it, that the perpetrators will be held to account. And I, I think that's, that is part of it, I think. But, but for better or worse, Friday is a moment that we will be watching. And uh, you've helped explain a lot. And you've kind of helped steer my own sort of uh, ship, if you will. It's a topic I'm not very, uh, very fluent in. So you're, you're very kind to give me the broader view. I'll be logged in tomorrow's webinars, so you may see me again. And if you need help, if you need help, just message me. Technical, I think. If you need, like, distraction, you message me in in the private Zoom chat. I'll pop in and just take care of the rest. And uh, Olga, 
I'm happy you're I'm happy you're safe. I'm I'm very honored that you spoke to me after today's events. And uh, I wish you the best, and I look forward to another conversation with you at a later stage. We can reflect a bit on Friday. But thank you so much. I'm very honored to guest, and so thank you very much.